there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to Time for Coffee. Hope you are savoring a delicious mug of your favorite brew. And please make sure to tweet us or tag us in your favorite coffee posts using hashtag time, the number four coffee or hashtag T for C. And you know what time it is. It's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my next guest, Brian Solis, is one of those people that I, I don't care what your major is, you need to listen to him. Brian is a principal at the Altimeter Group, which is a research-based advisory firm. He's also a digital analyst a digital sociologist, and a futurist who has studied and influenced the effects of emerging media on business, marketing, publishing, and culture. Brian, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I'm caffeinated as we speak and ready to go. Fantastic. So, Brian, let's jump right into your job right now as a principal analyst and futurist and digital anthropologist at the Altimeter Group. What do you do? My main job is to study disruptive technology's impact on business and to reverse engineer those findings based on specific scenarios. So for example, a lot of my work right now is studying how customers or people, you and me, make decisions about what it is that they're going to purchase in a variety of industries, whether that's travel, healthcare, beauty, uh, automotive, because how we're making decisions is really different today than it used to be even just a few years ago. And then advising businesses in those industries how to better market, innovate, and essentially engage customers to be successful as the as behavior evolves and changes. Uh, to get there means that I have to understand the technology that has disrupted customer behavior. Uh, I then also, as a digital anthropologist, have to understand that behavior through all kinds of just traditional field work and observation and interviews and you name it, ethnography, mapping, etc. And bring bring all of those worlds together, techno technological and human, to help people that don't do what I do understand exactly what's happening in the world and then help them make decisions about how to be more innovative. So I, I'm guessing I'm not the only one who has never heard of a digital anthropologist before. Can you explain what that title means? Absolutely. So it is a it is something that did not exist when I gave myself that title. And 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 I want to be uh, very very clear and honest that 20 years ago, as as I really started to, to study technology and its human impact, I had to do so out of necessity. Things weren't making sense when you just study technology in isolation. Uh, and for example, at, at the time, I was really studying how the world was and wasn't shifting from film photography to digital photography in the, in the early 90s to understand how to accelerate the adoption of digital photography. So I really had to understand the human dynamics of this, the switch. And I gave it the title of digital anthropology because that's exactly what I was doing. I was, I was an anthropologist, but using different types of tools and techniques to study digital behavior versus just traditional behavior in the field. And that, that is something that didn't exist at the time. And, and the irony is uh, it does, I believe, exist now, but 
with zero credit to me for pushing this title for all of these years and these and these techniques that I've written about in my books and research over and over and over again to help people consider the social sciences and their importance in a, in a in a digital economy. So hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, it does absolutely. So take us into a typical day for you, Brian. What you know? How early do you get up? What do you do? What do you read? And how does your day kind of progress? How do you like to organize your day and give us that fly on the wall feeling? It's absolute chaos to be frank. Uh, it's it's chaotic and it's not healthy to be even more frank. I'll, I'll tell you why, because there are multiple dimensions to having a role like this. So one is the research side of things. And then also, though, I'm an author, so I've written seven books. I'm writing my eight. Between those two worlds, a unforeseen and by unforeseen, I didn't mean that I, I didn't intentionally go this direction. It just sort of blessed that it came to me was I'm also a speaker. And because these topics are so profound right now that I get to be in demand, but that takes me all over the world pretty much every week. So, so balancing all of these things are crazy. So for example, uh, two or three weeks ago, I was, I was just in China for one night. I was in the Philippines for one night. These things you know, take you longer to get there on the plane than you are on the ground. But I have, I have to do that in order to get back to work and not disrupt my process as much as possible. So a typical day in the life is something like that. I have to start my days very early, sometimes 5.30, 6 o'clock, because I have to take calls on the other side of the world. I have to interview subjects every single day for research that might not even come out for a year from the days that I start start those interview processes. I have to carve time to write about thought leadership on a particular topic so I'm relevant in between the books and the research reports so that I'm contributing articles in places that are going to reach my intended audiences and carving out time also for the promotion of that work because you can't just publish something. Uh, you have to get people to read it as well. So there's a content production and marketing function that I had to learn in order to try to be relevant. And then making time for all kinds of additional content production, so not just writing, but also podcasting, video series to reach people in their preferred medium and channel. So every day is structured as best it can be around all of those different things. Uh, and then the weekends, I basically, I, I'm a father, so I, I try to make time for my children and, and my wife as well. But I do have to work, for example, on my book every weekend. I work on my presentations uh, on the weekends so as to not disrupt my day-to-day my -day flow during the week. So super chaotic. And I'm learning, to be honest, how to better manage it. And it's one of the reasons why I'm writing this next book about this is so that I can force learn a lot of <laughs> techniques that I just didn't have uh, as this became more chaotic over time. Oh my gosh. Well, you did pick a profession that changes just about every other day. Ryan, as you know, the, the Time for Coffee podcast and websites is all about helping Java junkies between the ages of 18 and 25 better understand what different jobs in dozens of different careers and professions are really like so that they can then pick the right track for them. What jobs are available now and will be available for Java junkies due to AI, machine learning, technology, and the digital revolution, what you call digital Darwinism that's underway. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, well, just a quick, quick, quick explanation of digital Darwinism. It is uh, the reality that business 
and technology and society are evolving. And we as organizations and as individuals either evolve and adapt or we don't. And it's, it's, it's a choice. This is why there's so much disruption in every single industry is because what you have is a lot of, a lot of models that were created before an era of digital Darwinism and worked quite fine in an analog world. But as the world changes, so much everything. The availability of jobs is unprecedented, I, I believe. I'm not just a hopeless optimist. I see firsthand the level and to the degree of which we need diverse skill sets to invent new models, to support those new models, to find ways to engage the new customer or the new student or the new brain. So yes, there's a lot of disruptive technologies that are coming into play. So AI, machine learning, I'm sure that's going to displace a lot of repetitive jobs like, so for example, in my work, traditional analysis can be done by a machine. But those insights still have to come from a human being. Creativity still has to come from a human being. But I will say this, technology aside, what the world needs now, and in my work, so it's not just making sense of what's happening. It's also executing against what needs to happen as a result. And that, for example, my company, Altimeter Group, is owned by, was acquired by a group called Profit. And Profit is a consultancy that helps organizations adapt to these modern times in numerous ways. So whether that's digital transformation, so building out new models to be more digitally centered uh, and more agile uh, in these crazy times, or building out innovation capabilities to not just say, for example, invest in research and development, but to literally be innovative, whether that's products or services or thinking or working. Uh, so they're Profit, for example, is employed by consultants who become specialists in any one of these topics. And the amount of which we need people who are experts in these fields and also experts in helping people become more effective in how they work in, say, well, what is machine learning and how is that affecting our ability to understand how the consumer is changing and then use the same tools to more effectively automate that engagement and also make it feel more personal. We need people who can answer those types of questions. So it sounds like in order to be prepared to go into those professions, Java junkies, if they're interested in this, should be studying AI or what? Yeah, you know, because that's when, when you ask the question like that, it's like, well, you know, that's that's no easy task, I'm sure. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's really actually understanding that there's, well, there's two things. One is, for example, consultants are needed now more than ever. And, and, and by consultants, I mean business consultants, not just technological consultants. So you don't have to be an expert in machine learning uh, or artificial intelligence to help a business understand how to apply those tools to be more effective. What you do need to understand is that a business is being affected by that those technologies. Uh, and then part of the consultant's role is to bring people in like me who are the technological experts. What we do need, though, what businesses really need is there are traditional consultants. Uh, I won't I won't name the types of companies, but they they've understood what it takes to help businesses do certain things. And it's called change management. It's been around for a really long time. And we have probably more than enough consultants in that that line of thinking and work. Uh, what we don't have is this sort of this new generation of disruptive consultants who understand that things are moving at a much different pace, that technologies are incessant and they're accelerating and they're 
they're diverse uh, in all kinds of fields. What we need are consultants who understand how to explore new business models to compete in these types of times and also to have the people skills that help executives understand that, yes, times are changing. And yes, unfortunately, a lot of our ways of thinking are kind of fallen out of favor or or a little outmoded Uh, and helping us traditional folks move into a new genre, a new era of how to work. And that, that consultant is set to take over and it's starting now. What about the jobs of the future? How can we identify and train for the jobs of the future and, and what are they? Yeah, there's a lot of talk about this right now. And, and I would, you know, to the Java junkies, I would Google social science and AI jobs. There's a lot of talk specifically in this industry because automation is by default, on the kill list. Anything that has repetitive tasks in any type of field is going to be essentially taken over by the robots. And that sounds scary, but really what it's going to do is it's going to create all kinds of new jobs. And this is already starting to take place. Machines need a manager, a human manager. They need to be programmed. They need to be They need to be used in ways that add value to other areas of work. And so this idea of creativity or psychology or philosophy, these are important skill sets that are actually going to help better train the machines, as as strange as that sounds. Um, What kind of jobs is that going to create? Well, so for example, I'm in the analysis world. I can have machines process data for me in ways that you know human beings used to, I used to do. But does that make me irrelevant? No. And now I get to put machines to work in ways that then allow me to take that data and make some very informed decisions about how to change companies for the future. So it's, it's really about elevating how you think about work. The types of jobs that are opening up around this are all Googleable. Uh, there's lists of all kinds of jobs that are coming as a result from all of these new technologies. And it's a matter of really finding one that fascinates you because it's uh, as an optimist, but also a realist, there are more and more opportunities for people than there were yesterday. You just have to be open-minded to realize that maybe what you're studying today versus what is needed tomorrow requires a little bit of a change in direction. And I honestly have to do this every single week, it seems. I have to learn new skill sets to be relevant as these things change too. So I call myself the uh, the Madonna of my industry because <laughs> I have to reinvent myself every so often because things that I did before are pretty much now obsolete. So what should those Java junkies who are still in school now be studying? What courses should they be taking now to be as prepared as possible for this new world? I would plug into in the Google Jobs of the Future and maybe add a, a word that's related to a field that you're very interested in to just get an idea, just get some flavor of what's happening in your world right now. And that way, it's not something that you're shocked about and start reading the criteria of what it takes to support these types of jobs. There are job listings that exist now. There's people like me who postulate on what some of these jobs are going to be like and the skills that are necessary to support them. But I say to do this this legwork because one, it's fast and it's easy to open these doors, start seeing what it is that's happening right now. The other thing is just simple gap analysis, which is this is these jobs are interesting to me and here's what they take to do those jobs. And then on the other side, like a Venn diagram of sorts, here's what I know and what I'm learning. <laughs> and it's a matter of bridging those two gaps. And that 
that's what I do personally. Highly recommend for anyone to do. Just for me, by the way, that answer, my gap analysis was actually getting more into the liberal arts stuff that I was, I, I kind of was doing already, but really understanding the psychology of change more and, and philosophizing on what, what are some potential solutions to be more innovative to close those gaps. So I actually went into more liberal arts, uh, and this is where I'm spending a lot of my time right now. Mm. So give us an example of a job of the future that might surprise us. Well, I'll, I'll tell you a personal story. This is a, a CEO of, so I'll kind of answer it in two parts. He's the CEO of a global automotive brand. And we were having just a candid conversation about AI and machine learning. And I had asked him, you know, how are you preparing your factory force for AI and automation? I'm sure that, I'm sure that a lot of jobs are going to be eliminated. And, you know, he kind of had this, took a deep breath. You could tell that it, it just had emotional weight on him. And it's something he had thought about quite a bit. We got to the answer, which I can't share because it's a, it's a competitive advantage, but he did share the story of his daughter, who's a radiologist, and he said that she's gone back to school. She's a successful radiologist, but she's gone back to school because it's on the front line of elimination for AI and machine learning, that, that radiology is just something that's take, it's going to be taken over by the robots, and it's already starting to happen. And so she had to go back to school uh, to figure out what she wanted to be that was a little bit more, let's just say, future-proof in the medical industry. So... With that, it's one of the surprising things that I had, I had learned of a, of a job of the future that's here is almost, what would you call it, like a, a robot trainer. Somebody has to program how machines behave. They have to program what you want the machines to do. And then they have to program what to do with what machines do in order to feed it into other aspects of the business. And I've gotten a chance to uh, recently meet some of these robot trainers. And the things that they do are fascinating. For example, like they're teaching cars how to drive by themselves. Another interesting job was a robot anthropologist that I thought was fascinating. Uh, in the autonomous car example, if a car is coming at you, let's say as a pedestrian, and you're walking across the street, and the laws in most states are you have to yield to the pedestrian, if you see a car with no driver, how do you know the car sees you? And robot anthropologists are studying scenarios just like this to help cars give visual cues, like maybe flash the light at you, to automatically understand that you have to be a bit more human in your machinery to give that cue to another human being that, yes, I see you and I'm not going to run over you. Isn't so, that interesting? It's so interesting. Ryan, you've coined the expression Generation C. And by C, you mean, is it consumers, customers, both connected? You know, connected. Oh, Generation C is connected. Is it an age or a mindset or both? Well, yeah. So uh, be honest, I didn't coin Generation C. There's a lot of interpretations of it, but I did give it the whole connected meme. Uh, and that is, as a result of my research, over this is actually the digital anthropology side of my work, I, I had noticed that when you are living a connected lifestyle, so let's just say you have a smartphone, you're on Facebook, you take Ubers, you order your food uh, through an app, you start to exhibit similar behaviors regardless of age. So you might make decisions similarly if you're 25, 45, 65. And it's it's a it's definitely a lifestyle. It's a mindset. Uh, it's more psychographic than it is demographic. And when you talk about universal behavior or you talk about globalism, uh, you 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 can apply those same same topics to the internet. 
and mobile phones is that uh, I could live in California and I could find someone who lives in France and we will have a lot of things in common regardless of age or income or where we live based on how we live online similarly. Uh, so that was the whole concept of Generation C. I wanted to get people to think beyond the demographics, like how we look at audiences or communities or segments uh, and really start to understand that this digital behavior was becoming so transformative that if you could focus on Generation C, you could actually solve a lot of problems for everybody in general. Do you think it's a given that all Java junkies who've obviously grown up with smartphones in their hands are ready for this new working world? And if not, why not? I'll tell you a story that... I promise is absolutely relevant, but it might not seem so initially. I spent the last year studying for, for a global beauty brand. The effects of phones and apps like Instagram and Facetune, the effects of those things on how a woman of all age groups feels about beauty, and then also how it affects things like self-esteem. And I'll tell you that for the most part, it was both eye-opening, but also just sad. How none of this is really understood to the levels that it needs to be so that there can be better parenting, uh, better better teaching on the subject, better health regimes, etc., to address psychological issues that are, that are unfolding before us. So I share that story with you because the same things that are happening, let's just say with self-esteem, are happening with things like focus or critical thinking or decision-making free of cognitive biases. All, I, I could name a list of things all day long of how these things are affecting our, our work ethic, our creativity. So in my research on the beauty industry, for example, uh, I found certain people who had become so self-aware of what was happening that they made intentional choices to reduce their leniency or not leniency, their relationship with technology, that they were more mindful of why they use these devices and so that they could be more intentionally productive because technology has a benefit, uh, but also there's a dark side of it. And that dark side is not anything that anybody teaches us that it's called neuroplasticity, that the more that you use, let's say Snapchat, the more that you allow yourself to be distracted by notifications, you're literally reprogramming your brain to operate more effectively in those types of scenarios. But if you then come to work with me in an analytical function, you're going to fail because you your brain can't focus in another way unless you train it to do so. So long, it's a long answer of which I recommend to all Java junkies is to evaluate their relationship uh, or the, the role of technology in their lives and their relationship as it exists today. And then ultimately the jobs that they're going to seek and what those jobs demand. Because I could tell you that in more cases than not, our relationship with technologies is going to hurt or set you back before it push, pushes you forward if we leave these things unaddressed. And it sounds like what you're saying is a lot of it has to do with the inability of many Java junkies to focus due to all the distractions that are out there with technology. Oh, absolutely. One of the things that I studied, so ironically, I wrote a book about how to design meaningful experiences in a digital economy. And the irony was writing a book about it and realizing that if I asked a Java junkie to read a book say like so for example i studied high school teenagers uh, and how they use textbooks in their homework and if you think about that 
common about neuroplasticity, right? We, we swipe and scroll and share experiences in six second bursts. You know, so we, we're learning how to communicate differently. We're learning how to feel differently. And if I put a book in front of you and ask you to study it, you're going to bring that mindset to the book. So you're, you're bringing a digital ma- mindset to an analog application. And so what I wanted to do uh, was understand how to reinvent the book to be more familiar and intuitive to that digital mindset on paper. So one of the things that I'd studied several years ago was how long could a high school teenager focus on a textbook before reaching for a digital distraction? And this this is now, I think, about five years ago. That number was six minutes. The so high school teenager focused for six minutes before reaching for a distraction. Now, that number is constant. It had gone down to 60 seconds, but now it's constant because the difference between five years ago and now is pretty much everybody has a smartphone. And then pretty much every popular application that's on that phone has notifications that are always pulling at your attention. So the downside of that, what's not studied enough and what's not talked about enough is that those come at a cost. So the more you allow yourself to be pulled into apps and then distracted for a minute while you respond or look at what's pulling at you, the less you are, you have the less ability to dive deep because you're training yourself to work in what's called the shallows. And that's something that we all have to be mindful. And by the way, I'm not immune to it either. It's uh, it's affecting me too. Well, it's nice to know that you're human, Brian. <laughs> okay. So final time for coffee question here. If you could share a, a story with our Java Junkie community about a low time for you in your profession when you found you had to kind of dig deep to keep going, whether you had, you know, a challenging boss or maybe we're in over your head and, you know, drop the ball, whatever the case may be, a personal story that would help give young people today comfort that it is not only possible to screw up and bounce back, but that we do it all the time and still do well. My goodness, my goodness. Uh, I, I could tell you, I've had that story many, 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 many times in my career. I've made mistakes. I've failed. I've, you know, I think it's part of character building. And also, you know, living in Silicon Valley, you have to fail. That means if you're, if you're not failing, it means you're trying new things and you're not pushing new boundaries. But I'm going to share two with you and they're, and they're quick, but they're recent uh, so that I could, sh- I want you to hear something different. Because I'm sure you can hear all of the normal stories of, of where we fall down uh, in the past. One was uh, I grew up pretty quickly in the digital world. I went from working in these new directions to becoming, I, I, I'm going to use this word just be, to be brutally honest, to becoming famous in this digital world because that was so early. And my work was, there was just, I didn't have any competitors. And I was talking about the things that people needed to hear. And so that came with a lot of fame overnight. And I wasn't prepared for that. No one teaches you what it's like to have that notoriety so quickly uh, and then to try to navigate what that what comes with it and all of the choices you make as a result. And in, in, in my world, it was it was digitally famous, you know, a lot of uh, big audiences that would translate into real world audiences. And I made all the wrong decisions. I, I, I would say that I even became in some way, shape or form morally corrupt uh, along the way, just because you're blinded and showered with all kinds of things that are not normal. And I see that playing out with social media today that a lot of people, kids, uh, young adults, uh, and adults in general, Generation C across the board, are having 
the same type of reaction to all of the followers that they have online. And they start to create these behaviors that engage those followers and that it gives us this sort of sense of micro-celebrity. Uh, and I, I fear that everyone is going to start making the same morally corrupt <laughs> decisions based on that fame rather than what true engagement means is how to build communities together. And then the second thing that I'm going through where I failed and learned is I spent the last year trying to write a book proposal for what I wanted my next book to be. And analytically, I, I was mentally okay, but creatively, I was struggling. And I'm a creative person. I grew up playing guitar and exploring all forms of art. And it was just frustrating that I couldn't, I couldn't create this proposal to be something that was so compelling and approachable. And I, after some soul searching and what we were talking about here earlier, is I, I, I was learning that I couldn't focus the way I used to, that I was succumbing to a lot of these digital distractions and it was affecting my work. And I think about then beyond just that book proposal, I thought about research report edits, how deep and extensive those edits were. I look at some of the articles about whether I could express a concept simply and the types of edits that were necessary to get those things out the door. And I realized, wow, I hadn't even noticed right under my nose that I was suffering and producing less quality work than I needed to to be to keep up and to still be relevant. And so that's, that's what led to this next book. I, I had to learn, and I have to still learn, everything necessary to take control of my personal relationship with technology and retrain my brain how to do things that used to come so natural to me, but are gone. Oh, Brian, thank you so much for, for sharing real-time examples of, of how you're digging deep and uh, trying to address some of the, the challenges that you're facing in your own life today. And for our Java junkies to learn more from Brian and the deep thinking that he does in the field of disruptive technology, you should check out his blog at briansolace.com. And you can get his latest book, not the one that he's working on now, but the one that came out a little while ago entitled X, The Experience When Business Meets Design. Brian Solis, thank you so much for making time for coffee with me and the Java Junkie community today. I really enjoyed this conversation and knowing how busy you are that you made the time means that much more. Thank you so much. I, I, I really enjoyed the ability to share it with you, but also just to, to remind myself why I'm doing this. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.